Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Garner. Thank you for joining me today. Today, we're going to be talking about the challenges that returning citizens encounter after they're released from prison. Um, you know, there are a lot of challenges, so I know that we won't be able to discuss all of them, but we'll be discussing quite a few of them, some of the major ones, um, and kind of really looking at how life is really different for justice-involved populations post-incarceration in comparison to other general populations. So to keep going and um, get started, I have Dr. Tamara Kang with here. Sorry, Dr. Tamara Kang here with me today. She's an assistant professor at SIU Carbondale. She completed her master's in clinical psychology and got a PhD in legal psychology from the University of Texas at El Paso. A lot of her current research is looking at um, different factors that shape attitudes and beliefs that present barriers to the reentry process. But she's also had like a past research history of looking at uh, pathways to crime. So trauma, child maltreatment, mental health decision-making, and um, other things that, you know, are barriers to implementing, implementing evidence-based practices. So without further ado, I'll let Dr. Kang say hello um, and anything else that she wants to say before we get started. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Um, and so looking forward to it. Yes. Okay, so yeah, we can um, jump right into, you know, what we're going to be talking about and different things like that. Like I said before, we're definitely going to be talking about the challenges post-incarceration and <clears throat> kind of what I wanted to start off with is like one thing that I've seen or that I've heard continuously throughout like just my experience and working with uh, reentry populations is a lot of them feel like yes, they've served their time, you know, they go to prison, they do their sentence, but when they come out, it's like they're still subjected to this life sentence, um, this life sentence of consequences that kind of never go away, of struggles, of hardships, um, and I know just like in my own personal family, <clears throat> I've seen where my mom has struggled with, you know, helping family members try to, you know, make this transition, but there's always something that is like blocking them. Um, and so these are the things that we're going to talk about. And like I said, I know that we can't talk about all of them, but I kind of wanted to start with like, what are some of the general challenges that um, you've noticed in the literature or even just in your own personal experience with working with these individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I just want to first start out by just saying that I believe legislation that does like actually present barriers has the right sentiment in mind. Um, it's not it's not trying to their heart is in the right place essentially. Um, and I think for me it's interesting to think about reentry um, from ourselves. Um, like uh, an offender is just a person. Um, they did something. They're a justice involved individual. Um, that's just on a behavior. And so, uh, thinking about what shapes our own behavior. Um, and so, when you're trying to then help somebody re-enter into the community and make better choices and desist from crime, um, the same things that would help you make better decisions or decide to do things are things that help them. Um, and I think sometimes we focus really on criminality, uh, but really crime is socially constructed uh, in some ways. Um, so we're just talking about behaviors. Right. Um, and I, I, I really think um, if you think of those general uh, sort of factors. Well, let me ask you, what are some factors that affect why you do things? Uh. Okay. Uh, no, honestly, some factors that affect why I do things. Um, sometimes just like education level, like there's a lot of things that I want to apply for that I'm just, I, I don't meet the criteria for right now, or uh, I just don't have the qualifications for. Um, let's see, what else? I imagine like there are probably a lot of things that I can't think of, but they're there. Yeah, so no, and you brought up a great one. So like education. So what we talk about is that um, there are technically seven 
factors that um, I think we focus on them as criminogenic needs, but they actually theoretically are not criminogenic needs. Uh, we're talking about the barriers to reentry and also how to desist from crime. They lay in those sort of facets where you have school and employment, um, you have family and your marital, uh, you have your peer associations, um, you have what leisure activities are available to you. Um, I think sometimes we forget that Yes, everybody has a choice, but the options that people are given are very different and yes. often depend on your zip code. Um, you know, we're a country that our school system um, is literally built by uh, funding within a county rather than at the federal level. And that means that education varies. Um, and that means after school activities or things that may help individuals uh, not actually go into crime um, sometimes aren't available. And so um, we're also thinking about uh, other things um, such as your personality. Uh, so like uh, some people are more impulsive in nature. Um, we're also talking about how the criminal justice system has treated you. I mean, we talk about the concept of procedural justice when you get out, just like you were saying, I've served my time um, and sometimes upset that perhaps other people um, have been given something different than you have. Um, and so like, why try in the first place? Um, and I think sometimes that happens as well. Um, but I think really that's the key to it is that why wouldn't they commit crimes? We, mm -hmm. we put legislation in place that restricts, like what you said, education and employment. Mm -hmm. uh, so the reasons to commit crime are, are very high stakes compared to law-abiding behavior. You know, if you work at um, a restaurant and you don't really like your job and it's the only job that you can get and you can't go higher than that, then perhaps getting into some sort of options that uh, provide more money like trafficking, drug trafficking, if we're talking about uh, leisure activities and what's available to you if you're in a, like a more disadvantaged area, um, you may not have more structured, organized, constructive options to you. So you might start using drugs um, and you might start hanging out with people uh, that do that type of stuff as well. So like, you know, and you're affected by them as well. And so if we think about then what people struggle with is that you have a sort of label on you. Um, you know, if those are the things that help us behave in certain ways, that means us and justice involved individuals, so we're all just people, um, you know, I think we focus so separately, right, <laughs> on somehow they're different, um, but that means that you would have to provide them with rewards in that area, high quality rewards uh, that would help them then desist from crime. And so, for example, their peer associations. Well, now you have a felony for a violent crime. Who pro-social wants to hang out with you? Do they want you in your neighborhood? Uh, can you afford the housing to be in a neighborhood where perhaps people are making better decisions? Um, are you around the same type of people that are abusing drugs? Um, are you within a family that maybe has a history and generation um, of not having the accessibility to get resources? Um, and so I think if we think of it from that angle, um, the problem with reentry is really structural in a lot of ways based on the limitations that we put on individuals that come back in the community. And so it becomes a revolving door where as soon as you're out, like what's, what's two felonies? If you already have one felony, you know, you already have to disclose one felony. So who cares if you get two? Two right. doesn't look just as bad as one. You know, well, now I can do five. It doesn't really matter. At some mm -hmm. point you have a mark on you. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think even with different types of offenders, you know, we, we of course think of people that do nonviolent crimes differently, but even individuals who have done like sexually deviant crimes, um, often we have stuff like registration or uh, community notification or resident residency restrictions. Yeah, those are all preventing barriers to those sorts of facets in life where all of us get rewards from, you know, mm -hmm. your involvement in the community and school and work and meaningful work and who you're, you hang out with and your support, your social support system. 
And I think then that's also linked into, um, in a lot of ways, sometimes pre-existing mental health issues. Uh, sometimes it causes mental health issues as well. And I think people also have a misconception. It's not so much, you know, mental health causes crime, um, yeah. but a lot of time, uh, those individuals that suffer from those types of issues uh, then do get involved in like abusing substances or hanging out with the wrong people. And those are really the key factors that if you're trying to help people re-enter, at the agency level, we're just frustrating staff, right? Like they mm -hmm. can only do so much. They, they go back into the community and, and how much can you help them? Mm -hmm. And once they're off supervision, then what, right? right. Um, and so of course you try to teach them the skills, but the skills are only so much. And, and so that's what I, I, I think is the disconnect between legislation um, and this re-entry is our hearts are all in the right place. We want less victimization. We wanna make a safer community. Um, but intuitively, like for, for example, sex offenders, you know, uh, that sort of the, the worst kind of offender is kind of what people think about. Intuitively, it makes sense that you would want to know where they live if you have children and to keep your children safe, right. especially with like the high profile cases um, that bring about like the Adam Welsh Child Protection Act. And, you know, that was a really sad story about that boy. He was preyed on. Um, and so forth. And uh, there was another with Megan's Law. And I think intuitively, that's a great idea, but we don't realize then you're putting these barriers on people that now those facets where we can get meaning in life are now limited in some ways and they're limited forever. Yeah. You know, even if you've served your time, just like you said, it, it doesn't matter anymore. One, one mistake. And sometimes, you know, we, we transfer kids to adult court. Um, and that means something you did when you were a juvenile has now completely corrupted your life, um, ruined your opportunities uh, to be able to do better. Um, yeah. and, and I think, I, I hope that answers your question uh, in a roundabout way. No, no, I agree. And um, and I think like, I think like when we're talking about barriers for like re-entry, there, it's not just like, one particular thing or <clears throat> there's specific areas of where we need to be focusing on like you said they are these legislative barriers that we're putting on people and then we also see these kind of individual societal um systemic uh barriers that are impacting this group and you know and their opportunities are already limited as you just like as you just stated and and it's just I don't know. And, and it's, a lot of me wants to think about like, how did we get here? And I know like, this is not the time for that because we could talk about that all day. But um, yeah, it's just like, you know, when we're looking at these different levels of, and I know we were just talking more of like legislative. Um, yeah, looking at these different levels, uh, can we kind of talk about some of those barriers that those common experiences that we see uh, offenders talking about when they come out? Yeah, and I think sometimes you can think about it that these barriers happen at the individual level, at the interpersonal level, um, and then also at like the more community level. Um, and I think sometimes those barriers are at the community in terms of uh, like your housing opportunities. Um, and so maybe the services that you need and to continue doing services or go to counseling um, and have you know, support from somebody to help you with a substance abuse problem or whatever it is. Um, we don't have those supports there sometimes at that community level. And also then at the interpersonal, um, you don't have social support, you're stigmatized. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you definitely don't have anything there that uh, would provide you some reason to not it almost feels like you've lost everything right like so right. I, I feel like I feel like sometimes when you talk to justice involved individuals um you you get different I mean they're all different right and I, yeah. I think we also think about that too um, in terms of like they're all one um but they're not and I think part of it is that um sometimes they start to think that they were wronged by the system. And that mm -hmm. means that why does it matter anymore? Um, like even like 
people are already going to think that about me. I'm already this criminal and that's my label. Um, and now that I've had a label, um, what's the point about, you know, trying to do these things and people say you have you have choices and you do have choices, but those options are the key. Um, that like you can't get jobs or you get fired or you get kicked out of housing um, because somebody finds out that you're a felon um, mm -hmm. or that you have a, you're a registered sex offender. Um, there's also limits in terms of how close you can live to schools um, and in terms of like residency restrictions. Um, there, there are also barriers. Um, so if you then talk about jobs uh, and not only fulfillment, we're talking about financial struggles and yes. already for regular people, we have financial struggles. And then in addition to that, on probation, they pay all their fees. I mean, it is so much money what we have so to much. pay. I mean, I mean, they all, they even pay for their own piss test. <laughs> I mean, they do. Um, you know, it's their color is chosen. They have to go in for their uh, random uh, pee test and we have them pay for it uh, to be yeah. able to do that. Which is, and you know, financial obligations and fees are like a uh, a totally, like I said, a totally different topic of its own too. Um, but it is, it, it you know, the strain and the stress that they have to uh, deal with already on top of, you know, like you said, the restrictions and the limited opportunities, it's just, it's outrageous. And um, I can see how that, the, you know, they continue to maintain this cycle of like, well, you know, I'm, it's already set up like this. The system is set up this way. And I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because that seems like the only thing that I can do. And I, what I heard you talking a little bit about was it seems as if um, some of these justice-involved populations, they they kind of internalize this stigma. Is that is that what we're talking about here? A little bit of, and then it just kind of makes them like, like you said, of why? Why continue? Like, yeah, I already like have it. Yeah, doomed to be deviant, essentially. That's kind of how they refer to it in the literature. Um, they talk about some people that uh, change their narrative are the reasons mm -hmm. that people desist is you start to remove yourself from the behavior and the label. Um, and, and I do think that sometimes, you know, we focus so much on like, look at these horrific things that they did but I think if you listen to them and you talk to them, they, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, like I, I used to, like, as you mentioned, when you introduced me, I did a lot of research on pathways uh, to crime and I talked to women and I talked to adult um, males and I talked to juveniles and I did mental health evaluations. And um, I, I learned so much, but the most uh, concerning point, I guess, of it all is it all made sense to me why they were there. If you hear about their past and their struggles, um, in a lot of ways, they were set up to fail. Um, and so if you think of you in that situation and whether you could rise above it, um, I, think, I think people think differently about at the beginning where they were and how they then ended up into committing that crime, um, there were many steps that got them there. Um, and, and I think in doing that, lost my train of thought, hold on. <laughs> oh, you're fine, you're fine. Oh yeah, so, we, so when we say that like they have choices that they do and these options, um, I, I think the problem is, is that, yeah, you committed this crime, we know why you're there, but my research has now shifted to the other people, the public, to change mm -hmm. legislation, um, because that seems like the population we know less about. We know less about the pathways to where they got to these beliefs where, you know, justice-involved individuals with a mental disorder are more violent or more likely to commit crime or more likely to be in a school shooting. Um, and so these types of misconceptions can present barriers um, in social stigma, internalized stigma, um, as you said, um, and, and definitely 
um, you can hear that voiced uh, by individuals that maybe even they had a really great interview um, and then they don't get the job because of their record. Um, and already they're a step below everybody because of their record. Um, and then if you think of individuals that sometimes commit crimes, sometimes they're very impulsive in nature. And so if you're already frustrated and you're angry, um, there can be a lot of things that tip you off and then you react to it. And, and also no one's taught you anything different. I think for a lot of these individuals is they haven't had the same opportunities. Uh, like when I used to talk um, to justice involved individuals, uh, it was news to them to like write down their appointments, right? Nobody has told them that they need to plan ahead of time and be able to have those skills. Like we take that for granted, like, oh, of course, when I set up a meeting, I'm gonna write down the time. Um, and so things like that um, and these sort of opportunities that maybe we seek out and we know exist they may not know how to navigate those systems. Um, and it's not for lack of trying, maybe they would if someone would have taught them. Um, and, and I think given that opportunity, uh, they would be. Um, but I think, again, we try at the agency level, um, but it really is voters and who, who is allocating tax dollars is where it comes down to because we do all want the same thing. We want a reduction in recidivism. And then we end up imprisoning these people. It turns into the schools of, uh, what is it? The uh, School schools of, of crime. It was school, yeah, schools of crime theory, essentially, yeah. where they, they trade criminogenic uh, skills and ideas and techniques uh, because you're a lot like your friends and who you hang out with. So you put people <laughs> with yeah. those people. Um, and, and so I, I really do think um, that a lot of these barriers, we, we like to point out, especially when a justice-involved individual has done something bad, that like they did it because they had a choice, but if you actually listen to like the turmoil that they've had in their life that then brought them to that place, you might realize that you were very privileged in a lot of the opportunities that you were, that you're not even thinking were opportunities. Right. Um, until you realize that someone else didn't have that. Somebody else didn't have parents or a stable housing or they were in foster care um, or, you know, I mean, there's all sorts people. Some some individuals are, you know, uh, when we're talking about females like uh, prostituting at the age of 14. Right. right like, I mean, yes. I mean, definitely we have all sorts of things like that happening uh, where they just didn't have the support. And I know me, when I think about even going to grad school, there's so much inaccessibility, the conference hotels, like I, I, I finally got paid like a, you know, a real, a real human being after um, graduate school, I, I wasn't scraping the surface. Uh, but, you know, I, we all had to like, you know, basically pack into a room at the conference hotel or stay in like two blocks down in like the shady neighborhood where we could still not afford the hotel, right? Yeah. Um, and so that means that people that are already don't have money, they already can't get a good job. And all of a sudden, all of these opportunities are just not accessible to them. Moving away for school. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, just think about the resources that go into doing something like that. Um, it's, it's not as easy if you think about the supports that you had and how they just didn't have them. Yeah. Um, and some of them, if you just gave that to them um, and were more caring, almost like what they do in Norway um, with prisons, um, and you see less assaults on officers, um, correctional officers, is where you treat them like humans. Yeah. You know, they're just people. Um, they're people who did bad things, and maybe we would have too if we lived their life. And so I think that's one of the reasons, like, I also got into this field is because it's a very sort of sad broken system mm -hmm. um and i think you were saying of course we don't want to deviate from our conversation but how do we get here and i think one of the answers that is it's kind of difficult to think about is that well there's two issues one is translation of research into practice and yes. uh 
communicating what the research shows. A lot of people don't even know we have treatment that works for certain types of individuals. Um, I mean, part of the reason we don't know the true ability of evidence-based practices to reduce crime is because they have to be implemented with fidelity. Mm -hmm. And and we also can't get that to happen. Um, we have so many, <laughs> and then you know, change over in leadership, and the whole yeah. new thing happens, and now we're down to scratch. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> right, throw that out. <laughs> right, and so I, I I do think that the system, the way we got here, is we tried to do things in to make the community safer, but in doing that we ended up taking away opportunities and things that actually keep people from committing crimes. Right. Yes, I agree. And like I said, and I am definitely in agreement with you of like, our heart is in the right place. And, um, you know, we're trying to get there. And I think it's so interesting that you're taking this perspective of where did we kind of like get these ideas from? Uh, because I also don't realize, I mean, not I don't realize, but I don't think people realize how much their attitudes, their beliefs, and the information that they intake or that they believe about these groups inform the policies that we have, inform the practices that we have, um, and continue to, like I said, just maintain these barriers that just are, I mean, like, I couldn't imagine being in this position and coming out and trying to take on the tasks that they're trying to do. Yeah, I couldn't imagine. Right. And I, I think part of it for me, too, is that some people, it's not that they're bad people, that they don't believe in reform. It's that they don't know. Like, they yes. don't know that we have effective things. They don't know. They think that if we allocate tax dollars to rehabilitation, that takes it away from other places. But in fact, you would save money. So you wouldn't actually lose money in those places that are already funded. Um, and, and I think part of that is going into the community and trying to talk to people because everybody votes about certain issues and then they don't care about the rest. Um, and, and I remember um, I was looking at a document um, that came out about where all money was being allocated for different um, funding opportunities to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And the document was like, you know, 300 pages long, you know, so it's, it's my job to read articles and read these documents, <laughs> but I don't even want to read that document. Right. I, mean, I mean, so these people in the community that are voting, they're on social media, they're watching the news, they're listening to a friend, they're not reading a peer-reviewed journal, they go online and spend $4.99 for an article, you know, they're not part of a university, you know, no. <laughs> I would say in some of these articles, you know, as academics, we go on and on about our research and, you know, 30 pages, it's like, you know, I read seven of those that takes up my entire day. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, no, they're, and they're like, you know, and the other thing is like the information in those is just like it it's so overwhelming as like a general population person I wouldn't want to read that it's just like you said it's too long it's got too much information there's probably stuff in there I don't care about and you know I'm just gonna keep moving on um and we can just keep doing what we're doing because in in my mind it's like well I really don't know what's out there anyways um, and I guess, I guess this seems feasible for right now. It's kind of like what I think some people honestly think too. Well, and I think, I think it comes down to, I can't believe I'm going to say this on a podcast, right? Now <laughs> it's going to be recorded. Um, but I, I thought about things differently. I remember when they had um, public loan forgiveness, right? Like, mm -hmm. so if you work at the federal or state level, like, you know, that's awesome. You do 10 years of service and you're, uh, you know, told, we don't know if it's true, yeah, air quotes there, uh, we're told that it will be forgiven and we won't be in debt forever for trying to get educated. Right. Um, and I remember they were going to remove um, the public service loan forgiveness program. And I was like heated. Like I was like, I'm gonna contact my representative. I'm gonna like be in touch with the Senate. I'm like looking things up. And then and then I read that it's just gonna affect like people that aren't already in it. Like, yeah. So, so like I'm grandfathered in, so it's not gonna affect me. I was like, oh, you know, it's just instant, like now I don't want to put the effort in. Exactly. And I feel like it's a you you see a lot of that. Like I imagine I probably have so many other examples too of where I do that same thing. And it's just like 
especially when the the information has a, an immediate impact on you like that situation you just said like this is going to affect me tomorrow um you know so but then it's just like when you read the details or you figure out the details about it it's like oh okay you know right? I, I could push it off or like whatever well, yeah, and I think that's why these individuals coming out of prison, nobody cares about them. They're falling through the cracks, right? That's kind of it. They don't get the support and follow-up care in the community. Um, they're just like set free to like go find a job, go find housing and be stable when you've lived in prison with a bunch of criminals uh, where your life has been totally different than what we live in, you know, the normal sort of, you know, outside world. Um, and so I, I do think though that we forget sometimes when we think about the public that mm -hmm. they're slipping through the cracks most of the time because just people don't no, or they don't want to waste their time that sounds bad or put the time into it because like you said it doesn't immediately affect them and that's why I said the thing about the public service loan forgiveness because I'm just sitting there and I'm like oh my gosh I'm such a jerk right because here yeah. I am wanting to put all this effort into it and now I'm like oh well you know it, sorry for those people right, right. Gonna, and then so you know you can only think then that people are like you know, justifying, well, they did these horrible things. So like, you know, why would I want to put time into it? Like, right. They had options. Like, you know, why would I want to help somebody re-entering? I worked really hard for what I got, you know, people feel that way. Um, and they're like, oh, they're just going to need, you know, food stamps or whatever it is. They're feeding off the economy. And, and part of it is like, you know, we just don't understand the immediate impact that getting released into a community and being told, try to become a productive citizen when you already have a label on you, difficulties getting a job, um, having you know housing, stable housing, having friends that are good influences. I mean, legitimately, if you if someone's like in jail even short term um, or prison short term, and then they're released they don't magically just get new friends when they get out, right? The no. same people that they were hanging around with that maybe contributed into why they're there are the exact same people. Um, and so, and I, I think, yeah, I, I always think about that, that, you know, part of the issue is that it's a lot of effort to change the system because it's so broken. Mm -hmm. And so we need more people to understand that if we could fix the broken system, it would actually save all of us tax dollars. Yeah. Like, you know, you're, it, it's affecting all of us imprisoning these individuals because the majority of them are released and then there's all these barriers and then we're actually making the community less safe. And yes. I think I think people don't understand that it's that you know cycle of crime and reentry and you know revolving door is what they say right like you mm -hmm. get out of prison and you're already back in, um, and and I definitely think it it's easy to say that like you know lock them up they did something horrible but then you think we spend like $80 billion like a year. And, that, and that's your tax money, right? That's 80 not billion. Like 80 billion on just corrections. We're not even talking about law enforcement or whatever, you know, and, and this is insane. That means, you know, that means, <laughs> that means you're locking these people up, making them worse and unsuccessful in the community. And then we are like, oh crap, we don't have enough tax dollars to keep them in there. And so we're going to release a bunch of people, you know, that we had the crisis, right? Not enough beds. And we had to release a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, yeah, I, I really do think that you know, the immediate effect might be that we spend money and we try to provide support for these individuals to get back on their feet and get programs where they do have those supports in place. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it really does affect us all um, in the long run. It's just nobody's given it like a long enough time to try to show that the benefit that it could have. Uh, I mean, we haven't tried that system, right? We, we've right. done this system for such a long time. So let's make that change and let's see if we're spending 80 billion because I would love for my taxes to get cut. You know, like I remember, I, you know, I came out of grad school and, you know, I'm in tons of debt and paid for all my moves. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is awful. <laughs> um, you know, and then I'm like, but I make a lot of money. Then I look at my paycheck 
and you know like when you're a college student like they don't take that much out like you're broke so like you know we don't take that much but then when you make money like the amount that comes out you're like oh my god that hurts so bad And, and so like if we could all hurt a little bit less and take less out of our paychecks because we're saving money not housing a bunch of people in prison when we don't even have the tax dollars to sustain that, then you release them because the majority of people are released. Mm-hmm. And then what have you done? You've just made the community less safe because they're going to perpetuate the same cycles because change is so hard. Change is hard for all of us. So yeah. when you just think about the barriers that they have. I mean, just the human body in general rejects change. Like, right. Yes. Right. It's natural to just like not want to change. You just like it the way it is. It's it's less effortful. Mm -hmm. If nothing changes. No, for sure. It's, it's so much easier to just like stay complacent um, and to uh, in a sense stay stuck. But I imagine that like that feeling of stuckness, especially for this individual is, is not where they want to stay. And, you know, and it kind of amazes me a little bit of like, with how many people that we have incarcerated, how many people we have continuously coming out every year. Um, it, it just, it, it's just amazing to me of like, how I guess like, I would think like, we have so many people cycling through here that it would be very impactful and immediate because like I imagine at least somebody knows somebody has encountered somebody in the justice uh, system has a family member a cousin a brother a child but it just doesn't seem that way and it's like I don't know um yeah I just don't know and I'm like that continues to be in my mind of like how is this not at the forefront of like criminal justice system and how are we not like because like I feel like in all honesty if we want to reduce recidivism sorry we have to target Mm re-entry like we we're gonna have to start there or put it in there somewhere it has to be in the plan yeah and I I often think that like part of legislation and changing legislation it's affected by two things that are really unrelated to research Mm -hmm. (laughs) and one is moral outrage in terms of big events and then the victims advocates uh, come and change happens based on some really horrific event Um, or they're shaped by the public trying to make the public happy to get reelected. Um, you know, you see during those particular times that uh, if someone wants to be tough on crime, a prosecutor might prosecute more cases uh, right before they're up for election. You know, yeah. it's just things of that sort. And I, I think like the case that's coming to mind is uh, is the little girl that um, is behind Megan's Law. Do you know about Megan's Law? I know a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's it's a horrific story. Like, you know, I mean, it's like the nightmare of everybody that basically this little girl's playing in her yard and this guy, her neighbor comes over and, and he's like, hey, I got a new puppy. You want to come play with my puppy? And she's like, oh yeah, like I totally want to play with a puppy. You know, it's a little girl. Of course she wants to play with a puppy. Um, and then what he ends up doing is he, he, he does horrible things to her, um, you know, sexually assaulting her. And then to a, to prevent her from telling her mother, um, he strangles her to death. And then we find out when we find out it was him that he had two prior where he had done something similar, where he lured like uh, someone to come see ducks one time was Mm -hmm. one of the things. Um, And so it's like the classic sort of pedophile, you know, story but then we don't think that actually the majority of sexual abuse that happens is doesn't actually happen from a stranger usually you see it within families Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really scary to think about but those are the cases that then shift um, policy and practice the same happened with Adam Welsh and I'm trying to think I I was thinking about this 1981 is when it happened and then so Adam Welsh um, he was abducted from like a store um, and eventually they found a severed head of his um, and it was a really it was actually part of the system was that at that time 
we weren't careful with evidence and things like that. Stuff got tampered with. Right. No one was actually brought to justice. And so not until like, so uh, his dad was a major, major advocate. Um, And then in uh, 2006, so 1981 is when it happened. 2006, we did the Adam Walsh Child Protection Act, which then brought about the SMART office, which is uh, to... What is it? Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking. So legitimately, an entire office based on this one case for community notification, mandatory registration, civil commitment, lifetime imprisonment uh, for individuals considered sexually dangerous predators. over one case, right? And and I, I understand what happened to these individuals is scary. It is horrific and terrible. But then making these types of laws isn't helping make us safer in that regard. Right. Um, people feel like because he had a record, if I would have known he had a record, he wouldn't have lured my child with a puppy to his house. Um, but in reality, we have to realize that the majority of sex offenders don't do things like this. And so mm-hmm. that means for all of them, you're now preventing them from reentering and becoming successful, productive uh, citizens in society. Um, you're, you're feeding into this cycle uh, that continues. And so I, I think it's, it's difficult to think about is that like humans are really driven by emotion. So these mm-hmm. big cases that happen, uh, politicians want to respond and they want to, you know, make the public happy. It happens with big cases for, you know, even uh, it influences juries when there's like a mm-hmm. high profile case. Um, and then we make all these laws based on those, even though that's the minority of cases that truly exist. Yes. The majority of people, none of that stuff applies to. Yes, none of it. And, you know, <clears throat> That I think that's another just very interesting point because I don't think I've ever thought of it like that. And like when I think about um, you know those cases and all these big moments of where we've had uh, you know these new policies come about, that's very accurate. It's very accurate, and it's never applicable, like you said, to anybody else. Well, not to anybody else, but to the majority um, group. And you know with this particular population i don't know if there are i I hope that we can as a criminal justice system we can start looking at more of the majority and what they're kind of going through in these experiences that way we can start come i guess like eliminating some of these um legislative barriers um and things like that to kind of move towards transition because that's where we need to get. We need to get these people out there. We need to get them, you know, the, we've seen so much in the research of just looking at the systems of employment is important. Housing is important. Um, you know, substance use, mental health treatment, it's important. All of these things are critical to, you know, their journey when they come back in. But then <laughs> they get hit with, um, well, what is what is uh, one of the, a collateral consequence of some sort related to employment and I'm like well and this is just what doesn't make sense to me of like you have these men cutting hair in prisons they're learning these skills in there then they come out and it's like oh well you can't have that license because of your status and I'm what what does that do for us yeah and I I think what's interesting to think about is that these big cases make the public scared and fear and so politicians want to make them feel safer and so when we talk about one big emotionally driven anecdotal case the way to then change legislation is to somehow replace that case with research because as researchers we think of aggregating data and we think about the majority of individuals like you know it's almost like uh would you imprison everybody and risk imprisoning innocent people rather than letting you know people go, but there might be one that reoffends, right? It's kind of like thinking about you know the due process versus crime control model of thinking. Um, and and I always think that it's so interesting. I teach psychology and law, and the students have such a hard time thinking about aggregate data. 
And mm -hmm. that's because as humans, we think about cases, events. And so whenever I ask them to have discussions and integrate the research into some of these uh, really big topics um, in the criminal justice system, they bring up a case. <laughs> they tell me about like, a, like some media covered event. And I'm like, no, 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 hold on. That's not how research thinks about it. So let's rewind. Um, and so, and everybody thinks that's representative. And so I think to actually change the system, it's going to also take the field of psychology and research to try to realize that that is truly just the human tendency to do. And so somehow we need to research that process of trying to help people realize that actually these, this, this type of legislation that we have in place and this lack of resources or allocated funding uh, for these supports for reentry, that's actually doing all of us a disservice, right? Yeah. I, I know you're thinking about one classic case but that is not the majority and you're tearing families apart and you're having you know, uh, parents imprisoned and you're having kids getting raised. And then that means that the generation continues. It just continues again and again. Um, and I think we, we definitely forget that two things are really important. One is about the school system. We really do need to fix school systems where everybody is afforded an opportunity for an education. So we all have similar choices and options to make. Um, but I think the other part is about family mm -hmm. and the people that raise these individuals and they're broken themselves. And so they perpetuate the cycle. And so to stop the cycle, it takes resources and it takes trying to actually do sort of preventative where you provide resources early on to support individuals that don't have it um, and may come from more disadvantaged backgrounds um, so that they don't end up where most people end up uh, because you have now formed options and given them options uh, that they wouldn't have had. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we often think about like uh, uh, the providing um, public assistance to individuals through like food stamps and housing, you know, that's money. But actually, if we would just funnel more money, it truly would cut down. Uh, and if, if anybody wants to argue about it, well, why don't we try it, right? right. Obviously, what we're doing now isn't working. Not at all. So, so if it's not working, we're still doing it. And you want to make the community safer. I want to make the community safer. Uh, what you're doing isn't working. You know, people are still offending. Yes. And we, we talk to, you know, justice involved individuals and we're realizing we're making big mistakes and basically ruining people's lives um, before they're already, you know, they've already begun essentially. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like kind of what you're saying is along with these kind of pre-existing things that we talked about earlier, people, and you know, people have these lives that are full of disadvantage. They're full of turmoil and, you know, whatever chaos may be going on in their life. But as like practitioners, as a, a field, as a system, we need to be putting in place preventative measures, things that are going to, um, help change the course of their path um, rather than waiting too late. Because I feel like a lot of times that's what we do is we wait too late. And yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, yes, we wait. We wait too late. And um, we have we preventative measures are very important. I know that's the area that I really like to look into, too. Um, and it just like you said, that's just it seems like that's what we need. And to provide these resources and allocate money uh, other places. Cause I don't know how many times funding is always an issue, mm -hmm. um, but it's like, is it really an issue or are we just giving the money to the wrong place? So, well, and I, I think I, yeah, again, I can't believe I'm going to say this on a podcast, but, <laughs> um, but, but I think, I think one of the issues isn't even about 
I think we can keep money everywhere that it is and still mm-hmm. have extra money if okay. we were just more efficient. And I think the federal government and the state government, I think I've seen state workers mm-hmm. and and like it is a yeah. The, there, there are definitely wasted tax dollars in the procedures that go in to how we currently have the system running. Mm-hmm. If we think of all the people that we pay and we pay a lot of money to and actually what they end up doing for our system, uh, I feel like you put a leader in place mm-hmm. that is more efficient and gets work done, gets projects done. Um, I have a friend, she works for, yeah, I'm not going to say where, who she works for actually, um, but she worked and basically everything is left to like the last minute panicking, then people leave, there's no one to fill their job. It's like a whole system of, you know, there should be procedures, there should be protocols in place that people follow, there should be training. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where we can save money because it saves time. Yes. Um, and, and that means that you're paying someone for less time and making more progress. Right. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And um, I think that's, um, a, like I said, a very good point. And uh, <clears throat> before we get ready to close out and like wrap up, because I really love this conversation. I want you to know that like <clears throat> this has just been very interesting to like to hear this perspective um, and to talk about it like in this way because like this is not necessarily a way I've ever thought about it Um, I tend not to go above too into public policy because it can get a little complicated and a little above my head um, things that I'm not ready to deal with yet but kind of you know since we're we're getting ready to close out and things like that just uh, can you help us understand and I know we've talked about it a little bit but this relationship between reentry and recidivism and like just very broadly of how this keeps, you know, what keeps happening here. Um, and yeah, what keeps happening here? Yeah. So I think for people listening to this, I think the best way to think about it is think about if you were just thrown out in the community. You didn't have any belongings, a home, a job. You don't have anything. Um, You've lost a lot of social supports. Maybe you've been in prison a long time. Um, But just thinking, just setting someone out in the world and being like, without any help, just go and do great things. And and so I I think if you think about you and whether you would be able to do it, because I know like, if I, I have a long way to fall before, like, you know, I, I actually have no money to do anything, but we're talking about somebody that doesn't even have $10, you know? So like you're throwing someone out there. It's like, I mean, when, when my bank account gets, you know, anywhere, even near like a hundred dollars, I'm like, oh my gosh, transfer from savings. And then I have a savings, right? But like, that's what I'm saying, right? And so you're, you're like, you're, you're literally just think about yourself. Someone just put you out there in the community, go do it, go, go, you know, get a job. Hey, and also come check in for probation and then pay me for, making you be on probation and for everything that I'm giving you let's just give you some fees for yeah. parole <laughs> and and you know and it you know and that's I think what you were talking about earlier about like the privileges that we have because I think of myself like just going into this emerging adulthood that's almost what it feels like it's just like I'm just thrown out there to figure out like okay grad school this check in this when in reality my life is not as near as hard as these individuals that are, you know, coming out of these prisons and they literally have lost it all. I had no people who have been incarcerated longer than I have been alive. And they come out and they don't even know what Google Maps is. Right. Like, and, and, and be thinking like, you know, right now it's like almost three here. 
So when when I get off, like I get hangry, right? Like when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Yeah. And so like think about like you're hungry, but you don't even know how to find your next meal. And you don't know if you'll have money to do it. And you you don't, you're just having to get a job. You don't like someone doesn't just give you a job when you get out of prison, right? No. And so if you just think you're of yourself unemployed, no family, no friends. <laughs> go and succeed and do the right thing it's like you're going to do what you know and I Mm -hmm. think also if people look within about change and how they feel about change um, and I think especially in psychology we talk about you know cognitive behavioral changes it is so hard after someone's wired the longer and longer and that's why you know preventative when kids are much younger when we have things like conduct problems before the age of 10 or, you know, oppositional defiant disorder type things is these kids aren't a loss. It just means you have to approach the situation the right way um, in order to stop those cycles from happening. Um, And so I think that's the best way to think about reentry and this reentry and then recidivism relationship is that like, seriously, like think about yourself, like, you know, I get hungry. I don't have to worry about like, I don't have food. You know, like sometimes I'm like, oh, I have nothing to eat. It's like, I have so, I have an entire fridge. Like what is it, you know, my, my version of what is nothing to eat Think about like actually having nothing to eat, having no bottle of water, right? Like you don't even have water. You're just actually put out in the world and, you know, where do you go? I mean, that's it. I mean, it's just, especially if you have no supports and if you've been in prison a really long time, you especially have no connections now. Yeah. And the institutionalization of, and coming out into this free world, you know, you've been, your independency is been gone for so long it's like what do I even do when I get out here like what do I do yeah and like do they have a skills to plan are they like planning like you know six months in advance no like you know (laughs) no one's planning their trajectory after they get released from prison they don't have those skills they don't have an education uh they didn't have that opportunity and I'm just thinking you know it we do have to think about the little things that Mm -hmm. like you know clothes I have clothes to wear for tomorrow you know things like that like they don't have those things yeah they come out with legitimately like nothing and period and so you know you think about your resources you have a car you can especially in rural areas I you know we we're from a rural area right now you're going to school in a rural area and that means that in some communities the first mental health facility um, or hospital is 45 minutes to an hour away in yeah. true rural communities. So what if you don't have a car? Like, like I remember, you know, in college, I didn't have a car um, and it was fine. But then when I moved away to El Paso, Texas, like public transportation took up so much time that mm-hmm. I legitimately could not be as productive as I needed to be. And then I didn't have anybody to co-sign for me. Um, So I had to get a loan, but see, this is so privileged thinking and like that I already could do that. I obviously figured out how to get on public transportation, how to go to these places. I already had my undergraduate education and they have none of that. No car, you know, no wallet. I mean, yeah, you think if you're thinking about like, you know, when when I don't have laundry, I'm upset about it. Like, but like really I have three baskets because I can go without doing laundry for like two weeks. Yeah. Uh, they don't have that many things. Um, and so if you think about then what do you end up doing? The only thing you know how to do, and or maybe you're impulsive and you're frustrated with the system and what they've done to you and taken away your life. Um, and then that perpetuates potential aggression or misunderstandings um, that then you end up back out. And, and like you said about the independence piece, um, I know we're wrapping up, but it's just good? like, you know, you take away someone's complete independence and then you just put them out there. Um, and, and that's it. And we're taking for granted, we're taking for granted a bed, a pillow. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have any of that. I get to go home. Um, you know, yeah. where where is their home? 
You know, did they put down someone's address where they they had to put down an address, but did they put down an address they could actually stay at? Did they yeah. have an address they could actually stay at? Yeah. And I think that is a, a great way to look at that because I, I think even myself as like I work in this population, I don't think about the privileges that I have uh, compared to these groups. Um, and I think you did a really good job of like just kind of bringing it together, the correlation between these two topics and um, the idea of like reentry and recidivism. So I am really thankful for you coming on here, you know, sharing your expertise and, um, you know, just being open and talking uh, about these conversations. You know, that's the whole point of More Life is really trying to get these conversations started, get people to listen to um, what is going on and kind of hear these stories because we're not talking about it enough. So I really do appreciate that. And, um, <clears throat> and you guys, if you are if you want to know more information about Dr. Kang's research, um, anything like that, her uh, website link will be in the bottom of our description box. So please be sure to um, click on that. Go check her out for sure. And if you're interested in learning more about More Life, just push that subscribe button and then follow us on Instagram at More Life, the reentry podcast. Thank you. Thank you.